Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who receive the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because 
they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Amen. Hebrews chapter 7 has much to say about sin and judgment, though it's on the surface level seems unlikely. Actually, it is very important. This chapter is so significant that we cannot understand the covenants of the Bible. We cannot understand the priestly ministry of Christ unless we understand this chapter. And if we misunderstand the covenants of the Bible, and if we misunderstand the priestly ministry of Christ, then we have misunderstood the gospel. If we are taught it and then deny it, we end up being heretics. And this is a matter of the soul. It is costly to the soul. Now we might say, why in the world would this chapter about Melchizedek be so important? What is its significance? Well, its main significance has to do with the fact that there is only one way of salvation from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, from the beginning of time until the end of time, from Adam until the end of the world, there is only one way of salvation. Our apostle is arguing that point right here by illustrating it, demonstrating it, explaining it from Melchizedek, explaining that there is only one way. That is, in the Old Testament, they looked forward to the coming of Christ to die and rise again for their sins. After he has come, now we look back to the fact that he has died and risen again for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. That is the significance of Melchizedek. We might also wonder, well, that sounds simple enough. It sounds easy enough to believe that there is one gospel. However, it is not so simple in the hearing of most people. Most people do not want to hear that there is one solitary, exclusive way of salvation. That is, by faith in the death and resurrection of Christ, for our forgiveness and eternal life. Most people do not want to hear that. Most people within Christendom, within Christianity, they do not want to hear that. They want to think that atheists, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Shintoists, all the rest of the religions, animists, are going to heaven because they're good people and sincere people. And whatever God expects them to know and do, as long as they do that faithfully, they go to heaven. However, that is not the case. It's not the case at all. Another 
reason why this is an important subject has to do with the false teachers. The false teachers. One particular cult, the Mormon cult, also as they call themselves LDS, taken from their full name, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That is a long, lanky, and unnecessary name for themselves because it's a very deceptive name for themselves. Don't be deceived by their name. The Mormons, they claim that they alone have the priesthood of Melchizedek. They claim that their young men first obtain the Aaronic priesthood, and then later, when they fulfill certain requirements, they obtain and receive the Melchizedekian priesthood. And they have that priesthood. Yes, the young men who are just 20 years old and knocking on doors, riding bicycles, and driving here and there, sent out from the state of Utah, those men have the priesthood of Melchizedek. They say. That's the claim. Well, to say so would be blasphemy. To say so would be an abomination. To say so would be in direct contradiction to the many verses in this chapter. Not only this chapter, but from chapters 5 to 10, the apostle is arguing in one way or another to explain that the priesthood that Christ has is superior and he alone is the owner of it. No man, no mortal man has possession of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Only the immortal, immortal Son of God, the one who has an indestructible life, he alone has the priesthood of Melchizedek. So for Mormons to say they have it, or their men have it, their qualified men have it, is blasphemy and a contradiction, and it is robbing glory from Christ. It's robbing glory from Christ. But then, we may say, well, we hardly meet Mormons. We hardly know Mormons. There aren't many in these parts where we live. So what is the big deal? I don't need to deal with it day by day. Well, we do need to deal with it in terms of universalism. That's one. Number two, we need to deal with it because of a certain theology in modern times is known as dispensationalism. In ancient times, it was known as Marcionism. Modern dispensationalism equals ancient Marcionism. Ancient Marcionism was, was more blatant and overt and more disgusting than dispensationalism. However, dispensationalism, if we cor correctly, truly understand it, accurately understand it, we who believe in the gospel, it should be repulsive and repugnant to us also. Dispensationalism is an affront to the glory of God. Dispensationalism is an affront to the death and resurrection of Christ. Dispensationalism contradicts Holy Scripture, many, many scriptures. It cannot and should not be tolerated because it is a lethal, eternal poison. That's what dispensationalism is. For the dispensationalist, he will say that nobody was saved by faith in the death of Christ until the day of Pentecost. 
No one understood correctly. No one believed in the coming death of Christ. Not until the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. If that's the case, then they undermine Hebrews chapter 7. If that's the case, they undermine Genesis 3.15. If that's the case, they undermine Isaiah 53. If they are correct, if that is the case, they undermine Galatians chapters 1 and 3 and so many other scriptures that repeatedly testify to the fact that there is only one way of salvation. The ancient saints look forward to the coming death and resurrection of Christ. Adam, Abel, Noah, Enoch, they all, Abraham, and onward, they looked forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how important it is. And most of the people with whom we rub shoulders from day to day, claiming to be Christians, they believe in dispensationalism. They believe in that. Bring up the subject about how people were saved in the Old Testament and you will see, your eyes will be opened and your ears will hear strange things from their mouth. So it is common. And that's why we must understand this subject accurately. We said we must understand the covenants. That was one of the initial points. The covenant that Melchizedek represents is the same as the covenant of Christ. It's the same. And if that is the case, then we have to ask, why was Melchizedek appearing to Abraham which happened four to five hundred years before Moses ever existed, before Moses ever lived, before the Mosaic Covenant was ever delivered at Mount Sinai. If he existed back then, and Abraham is the father of the faithful, and the father of the faithful, a highly esteemed man of faith, why is it that he is subservient to Melchizedek? Who then is Melchizedek? And what did Abraham understand? What was his relationship to Melchizedek? And if that is the case, then what did Melchizedek represent? And not only that, but in our passage, Psalm 110 is quoted. Psalm 110, verse 4, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's in verse 17 verse 17, and also in verse 21. 17 and 21, he's quoting from Psalm 110. And that was written, composed by David, the prophet David. David the king and prophet, he wrote Psalm 110. David understood, because David composed these words of a dialogue between God the Father and the Son. And David understands four to five hundred years after Moses. Abraham, four to five hundred years before Moses. David, four to five hundred years after Moses. David understands that the priesthood of Melchizedek, which Christ will possess, that that is superior to the Mosaic one, the one that Aaron conducted. Moses was the one who delivered it, Aaron was the first high priest. And the tribe of Levi were the 
the tenants of it, they were the administrators of it, the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron, the brother of Moses. If that was such an important covenant, the Aaronic or Mosaic covenant, if that was so important, how could it be that Melchizedek is even more important than Aaron? And he's more important than the tribe of Levi. And so important that the Christ, the Messiah, will not possess Aaron's lineage, Aaron's priesthood, because you could only be a male and be in Aaron's lineage to be an Aaronic priest. Or in the tribe of Levi, a male in the tribe of Levi to be a Levitical priest. But in the case of Christ, he is not from the tribe of Levi, but from Judah. He's not from the family of Aaron, but from the family of David in the tribe of Judah. How could it be? Well, that's the explanation here. So if the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior, who was he and what does that priesthood do for our salvation? That's the question. Chapter 7, verse 1. Verses 1 to 3, our first paragraph, describes Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Melchizedek. An unusual name for us. It's not the simple daily names that we know in our daily life. Who was this Melchizedek? It says that he was king of Salem. King of Salem. Also verse 2 says king of Salem. What is Salem? Where is Salem? According to Psalm 76, Psalm 76, verses 1 and 2, we find the following. Psalm 76, 1. God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. And His tabernacle is in Salem. His dwelling place also is in Zion. Is this talking about earthly Judah? Is this talking about earthly Zion or heavenly Zion? It's talking about heavenly Zion because that's where God's dwelling place is. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. God's dwelling place is in heaven. He dwells in His holy temple. Psalm 11, verse 4. Therefore, the Salem that is mentioned here, the Zion here, is the heavenly Zion, the heavenly Salem. Not the earthly Salem or the earthly Zion. The earthly Salem, most often in Scripture, is called Jerusalem instead of the shortened form Salem. But this 
Melchizedek is king of the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the heavenly Salem, heavenly Zion. For this, we find evidence in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22. Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. Mount Zion, city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, he says. Chapter 13, 13, 14. Hebrews 13, 14. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come, where we will dwell forever, is his point. 13, 14. That is the heavenly one. But we could also ask, did Abraham know about this? And was Abraham expecting this? Yes, certainly. Chapter 11. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, 8 to 10. Hebrews 11, 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was living as a stranger in the land of promise, the land of Canaan, and he was looking, Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. We continue with Abraham in verse 13. 11, 13, 11, 13 to 16. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been uh, thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. He says that the saints, Abraham, Sarah, Abel, Enoch, Noah, he has mentioned thus far in this chapter, and they were seeking the heavenly city. Abraham was. And he has an opportunity to be reminded of it when Melchizedek, king of Salem, the heavenly city, appears to him. He was priest of the Most High God. We find this phrase and this encounter that he's about to describe in Genesis chapter 14. Priest of God Most High. Genesis 14, 17. Genesis 14, 17 to 24. 14, 17. Then after his return, that is Abraham's return, then after his return from the defeat of Kedor 
Laomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Two kings meet him. A wicked king, that's why Abram refuses the spoils from the king of Sodom. That's the wicked king. This is the same Sodom of Sodom and Gomorrah. The king of Sodom, a wicked man, Abraham wants nothing from him because he doesn't want to say, want him to say, the Sodomite king to say, I made Abram rich. However, he is favorable to another king, the king of heaven, the king from heaven, Melchizedek, king of Salem, who brought out bread and wine. Notice that. Why did he bring out bread and wine? What do bread and wine represent in 1 Corinthians 11? Seven, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 20 to 34, the Lord's death on our behalf, his body and his blood. And as a prefigurement, as an illustration, a, a shadow before it actually happened, Melchizedek brings out bread and wine to Abraham because Abraham anticipates the coming death and resurrection of Christ. And 18 says, he is priest of God Most High. God Most High has one superior, solitary, exclusive, eternal priest. And that is his only son. His only begotten son. That's why it says in Psalm 110, which we shall read, you are a priest forever, the father says to the son, according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 19 also we see this expounded in our passage in Hebrews. But verse 19 says, He blessed him. Who is the he? Who is the him? It should be obvious, and it is obvious, to the simple, straightforward interpretation. He, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abraham. That's what Hebrews 7 says. Further, it says in verse 20, And he gave him a tenth of all. Who is the he who gave? That would be Abraham gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. He tithes, gives a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek. Abraham to Melchizedek. These are the facts according to this scripture. Let's also go to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, where we read of Melchizedek again. 
In the Old Testament, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 are the two exclusive places where Melchizedek is mentioned. Just because it appears two times does not mean it's unimportant or less important. It depends on the context. It depends on what is said about Melchizedek. And therefore, we read, we start from verse 1. We read 1 to 7. Our verse will be verse 4. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. From verse 1, we note that it is clearly a psalm describing Christ because Christ was able to silence his critics in Matthew twenty-two forty-four, when he quotes this verse, and he asks them, who is this psalm about? Why does David say, if the Christ is the son of David, why does David say in the spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Why is that the case? Now, the Lord He silenced his critics because his critics did not want to acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth, who was speaking to them, was both divine and human and and a fulfillment of all the prophecies related to his coming. They did not want to believe that. They did not want to believe that he would die as a ransom for many, as he taught in Matthew 20, 28. They did not want to believe those things. Therefore, they kept quiet instead of answering his question. But the reason is, Jesus is both fully man as the son of David, yet without sin, and he has full deity as God the Father. That doctrine they did not want to confess. Therefore, they kept quiet. But it's clear the Lord, the Father, swears to the Son to say, You are a priest forever. Why does he say forever? Well, if he's from heaven and enters the world temporarily to accomplish our redemption, he then rises from the dead and has immortality. He possesses eternal life. He alone and his righteousness alone is the source of our salvation. He doesn't die again. In fact, he ascended and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Right? It says in Psalm 110, sit at my right hand. He's seated there. He's alive, not dead. And if he is alive, he has, he retains that priesthood permanently, forever, eternally. That's how great his priesthood is. He is the lone possessor of it. Nobody else.
So, as the priest of God Most High, he does the will of God perfectly, as we know, without any sin. Okay, chapter 7 of Hebrews. We read that Abraham returned from the slaughter of the kings and that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. We also learned from chapter 7, verse 2, like we read in Genesis, that Abraham gave a tenth of all the spoils. Those facts we read. But now, our apostle in verse 2 adds some more to us. If we don't know it already, and it's not evident from knowledge of the Hebrew language, the apostle tells us. He's writing in Greek, and thankfully we have English translators who have given it to us like this. The translation of his name is King of Righteousness. With the names of the Old Testament, with most of the names, we know from Hebrew and Aramaic what their names mean. And in the case of Melchizedek, Melchi means king of. Melchi means king of. Tzedek, with a T-S but transliterated with a Z in our language. Melchi Tzedek. Tzedek means righteousness. So it means king of righteousness, as our apostle translates it. And then he says, king of Salem. What does Salem mean? Salem in Hebrew is another word for peace, as he translates it, which is king of peace. We know the more familiar shalom. Shalom, also in Hebrew, means peace. But these two words for peace, this king is king of that place of peace, which is heaven. In contrast to the outer darkness, in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is no peace there in hell. Matthew 8, 11, and 12. That there is outer darkness in hell. No peace. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Isaiah 48, 22. But there is peace in heaven. Verse 3. Verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. We have no genealogy in the Old Testament for Melchizedek. Nothing about his parentage is given to us. Why? Nothing about his birth, nothing about his death. Why? Because he doesn't have a father. He does not have a mother. He does not have beginning of days nor end of life. There's nothing to explain. Why? Because he is made like the Son of God, a priest perpetually. That is, he is described and presented in the Old Testament just like the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. What was prefigured and pictured in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. If Melchizedek did not die and therefore of necessity transfer his priesthood to the next generation, to his son, who would then in his lifetime at a point transfer the priesthood 
bestow it upon his son, and so forth. That's what happened with Aaron, but not with Melchizedek. Therefore, he's a priest perpetually, permanently, forever. Now, as we describe Melchizedek, the average ear, especially the Jewish ear, it would grate against his nerves. The Jew would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you sure Melchizedek is greater than Abraham? Who is greater than Abraham, who is such a model of great faith to us? Therefore, he proves it. That's what he does in the middle part of this chapter in reference to Abraham, the tribe of Levi, and the family of Aaron. Abraham, Levi, and Aaron. That Christ is superior because Melchizedek was superior to Abraham, Levi and the tribe of Levi, Aaron and the family of Aaron, all of them. And if it's Aaron, it's also superior to Moses, which he's already said from chapter 3. 7-4. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. How great was he? Abraham was our patriarch, and Abraham, the patriarch, the father of the faithful who believe in Christ, Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. It's not Melchizedek giving a tenth to Abraham, but Abraham gives a tenth to him. The giver, in terms of position, is inferior to the receiver of the tenth. This point he'll prove. Verse 5, And those indeed of the sons of Levi who receive the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people that is from their brethren although these are descended from Abraham the point is the law such as in Numbers chapter 18 Numbers 18 explains that the sons of Levi the rest of the people of Israel the other tribes are supposed to give to the Levitical tribe, a tenth of their earnings. If the rest of the tribes are supposed to give a tenth to the tribe of Levi so that they can minister in the temple and tabernacle, then what does that indicate? Well, he's saying in verse 5, the law commands it. God through Moses commanded it in Numbers 18. And if he commanded it in Numbers 18, why would he command it when the tribe of Levi and the sons of Israel, generally speaking, they are the descendants of Abraham? Are they not special people? Were they not chosen by God out of all the tribes of the earth? If they are so special to be the people of God in the covenantal sense, not in the secure salvific sense, but in the covenantal sense, if that's the case, they are so special, why are the special people having to give a tenth of their earnings to the sons of Levi? 
to the tribe of Levi because they are all descended from Abraham, yet they are inferior. God made them inferior, and he made them positionally inferior to the priests in the tribe of Levi, but also to Abraham, even though they are descended from Abraham. And usually that's the way it is. Unless there is some particular, peculiar exception, the descendants are typically inferior to their ancestors. And that's the case in verse 5. But God commanded it, so they gave. Verse 6. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Abraham's descendants, or, or excuse me, verse 6, Abraham, who is the ancestor, not the descendant, the ancestor, the great ancestor, the patriarch, gave a tenth to Melchizedek. Even though Abraham not only was the patriarch, but verse 6 now says, he's the one that received the promises. God announced many promises to Abraham. And yet Abraham, though possessor of the promises, gave a tenth to Melchizedek. Verse 7, But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Verses 6 and 7, When a priest blesses an individual or a group, the priest is standing in terms of his position, in terms of his office, in a superior role to bless the one that's in a lesser role. The greater blesses the lesser. That happened with Abraham and Melchizedek. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, without a doubt. That's the way they clearly understood it with Aaron and the tribe of Levi. When they blessed the people, the, the worshipers, the people understood that the Levitical tribe and the family of Aaron had a superior role to pray for them, to bless them, and to teach them. They understood that. That's why he says there's no dispute. Verse 8. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. In the case of the Levitical tribe and the Aaronic family, they were mortal men. They died. Aaron died. Moses died. The sons of Aaron died. We know the famous two sons of Aaron that they died in Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu. They died. They die. But Melchizedek did not die. He lived on. Therefore, there is something superior in his priesthood. Verse 9. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, Paid tithes. How so? Verse 10. 
for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Here, here we have an example of corporate identity. Corporate identity. That is, it took some years before Levi was born, the patriarch, and then the tribe of Levi formed. And some more years later, hundreds of years later, for the tribe of Levi to be chosen in the time of Moses to be the priestly tribe, the tribe of Levi. If they were many years later, how is it that they are inferior and that they paid tithes to Melchizedek? They did it through Abraham. That's his argument in verses 9 and 10. They paid tithes to Melchizedek. So the tribe of Levi that receives tithes from the common people, they paid tithes in the loins of Abraham when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, which proves that the Levitical priesthood is inferior to the priesthood of Melchizedek. That's his argument in verses 9 and 10. Now, if that sounds strange, it should not be, according to the way he's arguing here, irrefutably. But also notice, when we <laughs> preach the doctrine of original sin, from Romans 5, 12 to 21, Romans 5, 12 to 21, and 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22, and among other passages, when we preach it, the argument of the Apostle Paul is that all of us sinned when Adam sinned. When Adam committed his sin, we all sinned. That's corporate identity again, and corporate responsibility, and corporate guilt, and corporate condemnation. When Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam became guilty, we became guilty. When Adam was condemned and death was sentenced on him, then it was also on us. That's original sin. Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Well, that same concept is here in Hebrews 7, 9 and 10. Further, he argues, now in reference to the tribe, a comparison and contrast between the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Judah. 11 to 14. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? The people put their false hope in the Levitical priesthood as though perfection could be obtained and derived from the Levitical priesthood. No, the Levitical priesthood was added because of transgressions. As the Apostle says in Galatians 3, Galatians 3, 15 to 29, he argues similar to here, to Hebrews 7, to say that God made promises to Abraham, but when Moses came along later and the Levitical priesthood came along later, it didn't come along to subvert or change any of the promises or any of the oaths or any of the purposes of God that were previously announced before Moses. No, no. Moses came along in order 
to buttress, in order to add on to, in order to intensify the sins of the people. For the people to realize how utterly sinful they were. How powerless they were to overcome their sins. That's Galatians 3, 15 to 29. And so, that's why he says, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, but it wasn't. You have misunderstood it, if you thought so. And here's another argument. Why was there a need for another priest? He's talking about Psalm 110. When David records the dialogue between God the Father and the Son. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, Moses came four or five hundred years before David, and the tribe of Levi received that priesthood. If that's the priesthood that gives us perfection, then why does David say another priest is coming? According to the order of Melchizedek way back in the time of Abraham. That one. And not, Psalm 110 doesn't say, you are a priest forever according to the order of Aaron. doesn't say Aaron. It says Melchizedek. On purpose. Verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. Yes, when there is a new priesthood, the law also changes. He's saying this because if Christ has the priesthood of Melchizedek, then the temporary purposes of the Levitical Aaronic priesthood ceases, is abolished. That's the point he makes. He'll elaborate on that in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Verse 13. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. What is that other tribe? Who received this oath, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek? Christ. From another tribe. What tribe? Verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Correct. In fact, if any man or woman in any other tribe presumed to take the office of a priest to conduct anything that the priest was supposed to conduct, a curse would be on him. For example, in 1 Samuel 13, King Saul from the tribe of Benjamin usurped the office of priest And God said, enough. And he took the kingdom or the dynasty away from Saul and gave it to David, a man after his own heart. 1 Samuel 13, 14. 1 Samuel 13, 14. So nobody could conduct the responsibilities of a priest from any other tribe. And Moses did not say anything that the tribe of Judah would do anything that would resemble the tribe of Levi. Why then? What is the special aspect of it? The special part is that it has to be 
an oath of God that determines that Christ has the special priesthood. It has to be the oath of God, which he's going to speak of in 15 and following. But before we get there, if, you, if we need corroboration that Christ was from the tribe of Judah, that would be from Matthew 1, Matthew chapter 1, and also from Luke chapter 3. Matthew 1, 1 to 17. Matthew 1, 1 to 17. And Luke 3, Luke 3, 23 to 38. Luke 3, 23 to 38. But we already know. The synoptics have the people shouting and calling Christ Son of David, and nobody is disputing that. Even the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Romans, nobody disputed that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. Even the Jews don't dispute that. They just say that his father was a Roman soldier. And Mary. Mary and a Roman soldier. In their blasphemy against Christ. The Jews say that. Even today, the Jews will say that. Not true. 715. 7.15. And this is clear still. He's trying to be very clear. He is clear. And he's saying, now I'm going to be even more clear. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. He's clear, contrary to all heretics. He's proclaiming to be clear in 7.15. He has been clear so far, and he's saying, I'm going to be clearer still. Verse 16. In the Levitical Code, they had to be a priest. It was restricted by physical requirement. It was by bloodline and sex. Bloodline and sex. You had to be a descendant of Aaron and from the tribe of Levi. Tribe of Levi for certain duties, and then more specific, particular duties, more special duties, if you were in the family of Aaron. And in terms of sex, you had to be a male, not a female. No female could conduct any of the services, only the males. So that's why he's saying physical requirement, verse 16. That's the way it was with them. But with Christ, it's the indestructible life. Now, indestructible life, he's not talking about Jesus' mortal life, but he's talking about Jesus' resurrected life, immortality. He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So his resurrected body is meant here by his indestructible life. It's immortal, never to die again. If it's never to die again, and it's on that basis, isn't that better than mortal, physical, earthly requirements? Yes, because it's based on a miracle. Not based on nature, verse 16, with Levi and Aaron, but based on a miracle, verse 16, which Christ has, the firstborn from the dead. 
Verse 17, For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The indestructible life, the synonym of that is in 17, priest forever. Not priest temporarily for 20, 30, 40, 50 years until you die, but forever. It's indestructible and forever. 18. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, and on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. On the one hand, the former commandment, the Mosaic covenant, Levitical code, Aaronic code, all of that he's calling former commandment, it was weak and useless because it made nobody perfect. It made nobody perfect, like verse 11. There was no perfection there. He says it again, no perfection in verse 19. That law could not. Why? Because in that law was lots of rituals and works, and works and rituals do not save anybody. What do we need to save? We need the righteousness of Christ, we need the grace of God, and then we need that righteousness by God's grace imputed to us. And only Christ could do it. That's the better hope through which we draw near to God. Verse 20, 20 to 25. Now the oath part of it. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. 20 to 21, the oath. Psalm 110, verse 4, is the oath. An oath is better than being called and then naturally from generation to generation, successively from generation to generation, naturally inheriting a responsibility. The oath intensifies and makes more solemn more serious, more grand, greater than the natural generation. The oath, and God will not change his mind, the Father will not change his mind, that Christ is a priest forever. 22 to 25. So much more, the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Why is Jesus the guarantee of a better covenant? Why is it a better covenant? 23 says, because the former priests of Aaron's family and Levi's tribe, they existed in great 
numbers because death prevented them from continuing. There had to be thousands upon thousands and tens of thousands over the years of those priests to conduct the services of the tabernacle and temple. They had to exist like that. So that's weak because it's mortality or death that prevents them from continuing. But Christ, verse 24, on the other hand, He abides forever. He lives forever. He continues forever. If He continues forever, then He holds His priesthood permanently. Nobody else has it. There's no need for anybody to have it because it is in His possession forever. Verse 25, Hence also He is able to say forever, Those who draw near to God through him. Again, he's saying he's able to save forever. Why? Because he lives forever. What he has, he grants to us. Because I live, you shall live also. John 14, 19. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. John eleven twenty five. That was John 14, 19 and 11, 25. Because he lives forever, he's able to save us forever. But it is for those who draw near to God through Christ. We cannot draw near to God apart from Christ. It's only through Christ. Further, as a priest, he always lives to make intercession for them. He's alive He never sleeps. He's never tired. He never has to eat, never has to take a break, break, never has to have a quick nap, nothing like that. He's always living and interceding for us. He's always there for us. Whether it's one of us or a million of us, He is alive on our behalf. 26 to 28. 26 to 28. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. We have such a high priest. No other high priest, though they were called holy to the Lord, they were holy in a very limited sense. They were not holy in the full, permanent, eternal, sinless sense. They were holy in the designated sense, in the consecrated sense, because of the grace of God and the calling of God. But in this case of Christ, He is 100% holy, just as God is holy. Even in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw Christ sitting on the throne, he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah 6, 3. Here, He's holy. He is innocent. Do you remember what Pilate had to do? He washed his hands in water and says, I am innocent of this blood. 
I'm innocent of this blood. He really wasn't, but he conducted the ritual to show the people, listen, I'm crucifying this man because you people insist, but I think he's innocent. And remember Pilate's wife, she had a dream overnight, and she said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Have nothing to do. She had a nightmare. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. They all knew he was righteous. Undefiled. He had no impurities, no iniquity. He did not, nothing wrong. Separated from sinners. He was tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin. Chapter 4, verse 15. Exalted above the heavens. He ascended into heaven. Pure, spotless, blameless, glorified, immortal. None of us have been that way, have been... Uh, have ascended into heaven like that, having accomplished eternal redemption. Verse 27, nor any of the priests of the past. Verse 27, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. The high priests, before they could receive and offer up the sacrifices of the people, they had to conduct sacrifices for their own sins and for their family. And then it would extend to the others in the nation. They had to offer sacrifices up for their own sins, which shows that they were sinful people, sinful men. Christ does not have to do that. He did not have to offer up any sacrifices for his own sins. Is there any account in Scripture of Jesus sinning and then taking an animal to the temple to confess his sins? No. Contrary to those loathsome people who say, theologians, New Calvinism, who say, Jesus broke the Sabbath commandment. If he broke the Sabbath commandment, then he sinned. Contrary to them who say that God the Father broke the second of the Ten Commandments, when God the Father endorsed the incarnation of Christ, which would mean also that Christ sinned by becoming incarnate, having flesh and bones. The Father would have sinned, the Son would have sinned, and even the Holy Spirit would have sinned, according to Luke one thirty-five, because it says that the holy offspring begotten is of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That is really a detestable doctrine to say that Jesus, the Father, the Spirit, sinned in any way whatsoever. If that's the case, then 727 of Hebrews is wrong. Because it says he did not have to offer up any sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He didn't have to do anything like that. What did he do? 27 says, Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He himself was the sacrifice for sins, which no animal, the blood of bulls and goats, could never take away sins. Chapter 10, 4 says, The blood of bulls and goats do not do that. Only he does it. So to the extent that the people understood the sacrifice of Christ, that he would offer up himself for their sins, 
they were saved. They had to believe the gospel just like we believe the gospel. Hebrews 4.2 and 4.6 says the gospel was preached to them. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2 and 4, verse 6. The gospel was preached to them. Yet they didn't believe it. They thought it ridiculous and incredulous that they needed to believe in the death of Christ for their forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Verse 28. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. We may say that verse 28 is a summary of what he's been arguing. The law appoints men as high priests who are weak. They are weak, they are finite, they are mortal, they are sinful. They have to be reminded of their own sins by offering animal sacrifices for their own sins before they can do so for the people. They are not called as priests by an oath. It's all weakness because it's weak people. But the word of the oath after the law was commissioned under Moses, four to five hundred years later, between Moses and David, the oath was announced, Psalm 110.4. And that's God the Father saying, His Son is the priest forever. The Apostle says, made perfect forever. Not that he was sinless and then became sinless. He, I mean, sinful and then became sinless. He never sinned. He was never sinful to become sinless later. So that's not what he means by made perfect. Actually, there are some heretics, charismatics, some charismatics believe that Jesus was sinful, went to hell, was beat up by Satan three days, and had to pay for our sins by being beaten up by the devil in hell. And then he had to be born again because he was sinful. He had to be born again and then rise from the dead to be our Savior. No, he wasn't sinful and he did not have to be born again. He committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22 But made perfect forever means he had to accomplish everything during his ministry on the earth. From birth to death to appearances to uh, resurrection, appearances, and then ascension. He had to accomplish all of this on our behalf and be the perfect source of eternal salvation for those who obey him. That's the sense in which he is made perfect forever. He was made our perfect sacrifice and made our perfect Redeemer forever. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.